0: Welcome back, men. This is another in the review on the making of a champion. This is the fifth part in the series from our Saturday morning life school sessions. And this week we're going to look at another of the qualities of championship performance. So, so far we've laid a foundation for why we need champions. We've then gone into looking at some of the qualities of champions thus far. We've looked at affirm firm and fixed desire as opposed to weak or insignificant desires or perhaps poor identity which causes us to want to do things for the wrong reason. So the the first is a firm and fixed desire. The second one is self-awareness and there's podcasts on both of these. The third one is then humility. Humility being the quality that uh, allows us to honestly look at what we've seen in the self-awareness component of of our performance and say yep I need to do something about this so once again affirm and fixed desire self-awareness it allows me to see who I am what I'm like how I perform and then also in addition to that exactly where I am relative to or in relationship to where I want to go am I very close to that desire or am I years and drastic changes away from that that's that's a very important part of self-awareness And then finally, humility, which is the ability to look at myself, to acknowledge that I probably do need some work, and then perhaps even to reach out to other people and ask for their help, secure their help in allowing me to move forward and make progress toward that desire that I have for the future. This week, we're going to look at another quality, and then we're going to break from that for a little while. I'm going to introduce you to something that I think can help us all to relate to championship performance. I heard a couple of guys that gave me some feedback early on in this series, and they said something to this effect. Well, I thought this was going to be sort of cheesy. this didn't seem like a a, a really important topic it It kind of just by virtue of the title of it, seemed like something that would be just raw, raw junk and And then a couple of them said, Wow, it turns out this is really good. this is really helpful." Well, in case you're still on the fence about that and you're not sure, you're listening along, you've actually followed along, but you're not sure if this actually has any relevance to you because you're not seeking to be a world-class athlete or a Titan in business or, or something like that, we're going to pause from looking at the qualities this week and I'm going to introduce you to something that will cause every one of us to think about how committed we are and how much we might need to be committed to something that. Plays a factor in every one of our lives. But before we do that, back to our fourth internal quality, the fourth internal quality of a champion, and that's determination. And I want to distinguish determination from desire. Desire is where you want to go, determination is your commitment to get there. Again, let me repeat that desire is where you want to go, and you've got to have a firm and fixed desire, a passionate desire. But then you also have to have an underlying determination that can take you there because, as we've already acknowledged on a number of occasions, it's really tough to do anything that's noteworthy. We typically tend to fall into average, ordinary. I'm not saying that's inherently bad, but without a significant effort, most of us arrive at average and ordinary. Why? Well, we said that because it even takes a certain amount of effort merely to be ordinary and that the difference between ordinary or average and superior performance what we'll call championship performance is a lot of effort Uh, in business there's a principle when it comes to financial leverage that says that evaluates what gain you can achieve based on the dollars that are spent i was just reading something recently where the company was evaluating and had determined that the significant amount of money that it would have to throw at some project to gain a 1% improvement in its overall performance or its overall level of quality, it was just the ratio was out of all balance. And so they made the decision that even though they could achieve further quality, the cost of getting that further quality was too high a price they felt to pay. Well, that's kind of the dilemma that a lot of champions face. The difference between pretty good and fantastic is not as easy to achieve. In other words, to reach fantastic when you were pretty good as it is to get to pretty good from ordinary. It takes a little bit more work, a little bit more time, perhaps a few more resources to get from average to pretty good. It can take a fantastic amount of effort to go from pretty good to outstanding. Uh, as, as a guy pointed out in our Saturday morning event, he said, look at the cost that it takes to gain an extra fraction of a second in a drag car or an extra couple of seconds in a lap on an Indy type car. Look at the huge amounts of money that it takes just to gain a few seconds or a fraction of a second there, where you measure performance in fractions of a second. And can throw hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars at a project, at a car, simply to gain a little bit. Well, that's the way it is with championship performance. Uh, again, come back to something as simple as the Olympics, that it's easy to see. Sometimes it takes winding back the the video and then slowing down the video to see who came in first and who came in second. In other words, who got the gold, who got the silver. All that The difference between first and second played out in fractions of a second. Now, over the course of that individual's lifetime, the person who took gold versus the person who took silver, if they are able to monetize that later on in their life, the difference between gold and silver is probably worth millions of dollars. But early on in that Olympian's career when there was no money involved, the difference between gold and silver might have been hours and hours of effort. Or perhaps it could have been some genetic superiority, just slightly longer legs, just just better muscle development, something like that. But whatever, what I want us to appreciate is that the difference between okay or pretty good or even a little above average on the one hand side of the fence and outstanding on the other side of the fence is a great deal of determination involved. So listen to a couple of quotes here that I thought were particularly helpful to this topic of determination. What man actually needs, argues Frankl, and that's Viktor Frankl that this writer is talking about. What man actually needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and the struggling for a worthwhile goal, a freely chosen task. In other words, what Viktor Frankl is saying and what this author is then borrowing is this idea That to be great at anything is going to place you under a certain level of constant tension. Here's the way another athletic trainer words it. Pressure is a privilege that comes only when performing at the highest level. And every one of us knows what it feels like to need to lower the pressure or the stress level, and so we back off from something. You know, we often refer to athletes choking, but I wonder sometimes if it isn't, if it is something other than choking, as in becoming nervous. I wonder if it's sometimes that people just get too tired from bearing the pressure of peak performance and they back off a little bit. Here's here's the way Robert Kiyosaki words it. Losers quit when they fail. Winners fail until they succeed. Well, what does that pressure look like? Uh, if you're in business and you've had multiple financial failures... What is the pressure, the mounting pressure like? Family expectations, peer expectations. Perhaps they're private investors that are looking for something. They've invested heavily in this venture and they've received nothing so far. Perhaps you've gone back to them for multiple rounds of additional financing and now they're really out and your failures, each mounting failure produces an increased pressure on you to perform the next time and some of us don't deal well with pressures I'd venture to say actually that most of us don't deal well with pressure now let me read another interesting quote it's a little bit longer and and I'll tell you a little bit about the individual at the end and here's the way he says it And this is this is very much like anecdotal in an interview form so it's not exactly pure perfect English he says the very first company I started well it fails with the great bank the second one failed a little bit less But it still failed. The third one, well, you know, it sort of properly failed. But it was kind of okay. I recovered quickly. Number four almost didn't fail, he says. Uh, But it still didn't really feel great when that happened. But it did okay. And number five? Well, number five was PayPal. And I suspect that most of you are familiar with PayPal. Uh, PayPal's claim to fame was that they figured out a way to encrypt financial transactions such that nobody could really hack into them. And the failures that this man, Max Levinch, I'm not sure, I'm not really familiar with him. Actually, PayPal is better known for uh, uh, investors such as uh, the founder of Tesla and um, a couple of other people that are actually higher profile investors in PayPal. But this man, Max, apparently part of it from the very beginning, and, and PayPal had a history of starting with a basic technology and trying to adapt it to one business and then another. And then finally, as I recall, this was their last-ditch strategy. They opened it up to the general public where the big question was, why would the average person want to transfer funds securely? Now, of course, this was much earlier on in in the evolution of the Internet and online sales and online shopping carts and websites and all that. It was much earlier on in the evolution of that process. And PayPal actually dovetailed nicely with all that. But the initial question was, why in the world would we pour all this effort into something for a limited market? But notice what he said. Failed once, twice, thrice, four times. It was the fifth go-around before he finally, finally got it all right. And that brings us to a big question. How much... Are you willing to sacrifice in order to get what you need? How long are you willing to fa- sacrifice? As a matter of fact, are all of your stakeholders, and, and in the case of a typical human being, stakeholders might be your wife, your kids, your boss or your coworkers, uh, investors, maybe even family that's invested in, in your endeavor, uh, whoever it is, how long are they willing to persevere? do they have as much determination as do you? Now, I'd like you to take an inventory there while I pause and regroup for the next part of this, but you just take some time to evaluate your own determination and also, when doing that, what are you asking from the other people in your life who are going to go along with you, willing or otherwise, in that great journey that you're taking and they may pay a price just the same as you do. Okay, and I hope you've had a little time to think about that. And we're back now. And I want to cover a couple of quick things before we move back into that issue that I promised you that we'd look at. All right, so when it comes to determination, there are some things that I'll call one-time issues. In other words, on your way to this preferred future, what we're going to call this firmly held desire that you have in the future. And if you'd like, imagine just a rectangular chart. And since... Most things that are positive always move to the right and up, to the right and up. I'd like you to draw a circle, imaginarily anyway. I'd like you to draw a circle at the top right of a rectangle and let that represent your firm and fixed desire. Now I'd like you to draw another circle, imaginarily, at the bottom left of this same rectangular chart. Place that at the bottom left and let's call that where you are now. Based on your own self-awareness and the humility that you have a, are acquiring that allows you to admit you have a long way to go from where you are to where you want to go, determination is that thing that's going to get you from bottom left to top right. Now some things are what we'll call one-time issues. You conquer this thing once and it's done. You fix this once and it's done. You solve the problem once and it's done. But as we all know from raising livestock or raising children or running a business or dealing with any kind of a ministry, there's some problems that need to be attended to on an everyday basis. They're a little bit like sweeping the floor or emptying the trash cans. No matter how many times you've done them in the past, it seems like they they fill up and dirt accumulates again and it needs to be done. Some things about determination are grand and glorious presses forward, done once and taken care of. Other things need to be done almost almost daily, frankly, sometimes multiple times per hour. Even things like a reset on your attitude when things are going poorly need to be done perhaps multiple times per hour. So ask yourself next if one of the things that's holding you back, keeping you from where you need to go, is is the issue a one-time problem that you have to solve, or is it an ongoing problem that you just need to recognize this is a tension that you will need to manage, this is sort of like a chore that you're going to need to come to terms with for the rest of your life. And sometimes business people who are new to business will be surprised at the level of customer service that's required, what we might call hand-holding in business, even after their established customers. They think, well, once I get beyond this, I won't have to do that as much, and they grow into an understanding that says, ah, well, actually, I guess this is not a one-time thing to solve, this has become more like a chore that'll have to be dealt with forever and ever. The next factor that we need to weigh in on when it comes to determination is that there is a price that you will pay, sometimes a steep and an arduous price that you will pay to gain a success. So hypothetically, let's say, according to our illustration, that you are moving from bottom left to top right, and it's an uphill climb. Well, suppose that you've spent a day climbing and you've made significant progress. Do you know that there's a certain amount of energy that it takes to sustain what you've gained? And that if you're not willing to hold the ground that you've gained, you can go backwards? This is another one of the frustrating things for people who are new to setting and attempting to reach what we'll call high-performance goals. There's a price that you'll pay to reach a landmark, and there's a price that you'll pay to keep it. And what we know from observation, what we know from reading history, is that many people, in in, in high-performing situations, many people are willing to pay the price to gain something, but as soon as they've gained it, they tend to slack off. And it's at those times when ground can be lost or catastrophe can set in. So understand this. If you are working toward a long-range goal, there's a price you're going to have to pay to get there, but you better make sure that you want it because there's probably a price you're going to have to pay to keep it once you've built it. That's certainly true for business. Uh, One of my favorite phrases comes from a motivational speaker that many of you have heard. His name is Tony Robbins, and he said he describes a time in his younger life when he was sitting in a motel room, and he had wished to be home, and he was out on the road speaking again, and he, and, and he was kind of feeling sorry for himself because he was on the road constantly. He was away from his wife. He didn't have any time to rest. And he came to this realization. He said, actually, there's a price to pay for success the same as there is a price to pay for failure. And right now, he says, sitting in this motel room, what I'm doing is actually paying the price for success. That, in terms of the way we've described it, is paying the price to maintain the victory that you've achieved. So what I'd like to suggest as the final thing before we look at that, that other thing that I promised you is that sometimes it takes a radical shift in our worldview to place us on a pathway toward a firm and fixed desire that's bold, that's big, that's worthy of pouring our life into. That's worthy of pouring our life into. There's a lot of firm and fixed desires that people have that are not worth the investment of time and treasure over a period of years. Make sure that your firm and fixed desire is worthy of all the investment of time and treasure, not only yours, but the lost time that family may have with you, the lost opportunities elsewhere that you could have seized, make sure that the firm and fixed desire that you have is for something big and bold. Now once you have made that radical shift and committed yourself unreservedly to that firm and fixed desire that you have, there will then need to be incremental change. And you can go back to the review of weeks one, two, and three when we talked about the difference between radical and incremental change. You will need incremental change then to set yourself up daily for gradual progress toward that firm and fixed desire that you have. It's like this. The day that you make a radical commitment to become physically fit and you walk into a gym for the first time, you're not going to do very well. Whether it's handling weight, whether it's managing stamina through any kind of aerobic process, the first day that you walk into a gym, you're not going to perform well. And if you try to exceed your capability on day one, You'll be lucky if you can perform it all on day two. So once you've made a radical adjustment in your commitment toward your future, then move forward with incremental steps to get you there. I love the way Jesus says this, and, and you might say, well, what, is, what does Jesus have to say about fitness? Well, he really doesn't have much to say about fitness, but he has a lot to say about taking life one day at a time. And at the tail end of a a lesson that he gives to his people where he tells them not to obsess over finances in the future, not to obsess over worrying about tomorrow's food and all these things, he says, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. So one of the first steps in being able to maintain a determined and perseverant attitude throughout the long journey from where you are to where you want to go is your ability to lock yourself down into what are called day type compartments. Deal with the problems of the day. Be conscious of the fact you're going to have to deal with problems tomorrow. But don't worry about tomorrow's problems if you can't do anything about tomorrow's problems today. Focus your attention on today's issues, today's matter, today's training, today's work, and allow tomorrow to come to you when you wake up tomorrow morning. All right, let's pause that again, and we'll come back and we'll be talking about something different. Okay, we're back again. And what I'd like to do is reframe your thinking about how and why and when you may want to exhibit championship performance. I was doing some reading this week, and it just focused my attention again on some of the problems that we face in what we'll call civil society today. Uh, some of the problems that we face in what we'll call a pluralistic society where we struggle to share the same values and where it feels in many respects as if the church is losing ground. But the church is losing ground because it feels as if the government is fracturing and it feels as if the family is failing. Now, that's not universally true, and there's certainly examples of thriving churches and pockets where government is functioning superbly, and where families are doing just great. But what I thought we should do for, again, just a couple of minutes to refocus your attention on how this can matter in your everyday life is look at three institutions that have been established by God. We'll look at them in the order that they show up in the Scriptures, and then we're going to look at why they're so important And to begin with, I want to remind you of the definition we used for a champion in week one, and we shied away from that one where a person simply performs to excel at something for his own glory. Now, I'm not discounting the fact that that is certainly championship performance, that a person can be great at something and acquire fame and fortune for themselves, and they can be outstanding. For our purposes in this series, we're looking at championship performance as being purposed toward one of three things. You are a noble warrior or a fighter. You're fighting on behalf of something, fighting to defend something, fighting to gain something that is far more than for your own glory. The the next one of the three ways in which you could be a champion is if you are advocating for something you're a defender of something you're an advocate you are you are standing up for the weak you are standing in the gap between something that is threatened and something that wants to do harm to it and the third way is that you're you're doing battle in one way or another and this could be battle in in, in the public square and i don't mean physical battle you're doing battle on behalf of somebody else's glory uh, the scriptures talk a lot about human beings doing things either for their own glory or for the glory of God. Uh, More on that in a minute. But let's take a look at the first institution that's established by God. We see it all the way back in Genesis. The first institution is, is that of the family. And the way it's mapped out in Genesis is this. It says, this is the scripture speaking now saying, that a man leaves his father and his mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. So the man's and the woman's primary allegiance transfer from their families of origins to each other. If you've ever been married or or if you're not into the marriage thing and that's a subject for a different conversation, but if you have been in a long-term relationship and you know what it means to be committed to someone and expect them to be committed to you, you know that sometimes that is a real growth journey learning how to detach yourself from your former commitments, your family of origin, and place your spouse in in front of even your own family of origin in terms of considering your loyalty. All right, well, anyway, we have to ask this question. If the family is the first institution, well, what's it for? Well, we know that first and foremost, family is the means by which more people are developed, something that God wants. Let me read a verse quickly to you from Malachi. Has not the one God made you, you belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Well, godly offspring. In other words, kids, but not just any kind of kids. Godly kids. More on that in a minute. So be on guard and not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. In other words, when he abandons his wife, when he breaks his commitment off with his wife, what he's essentially doing is cutting her loose and telling her, you go figure it out for yourself. So says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. All right, we see this a lot, but I want to focus in on these two things right now. Your commitment to your wife, if you're married, plays out in the way your children understand and will grow up to understand marriage and commitment. So to the individual who is willing to throw off his marriage, and I'm not discounting the difficulty of remaining marriage, and I'm not discounting the difficulties that people endure, and that occasionally perhaps there are reasons, justifiable reasons for divorce. This is not the place to have that discussion. What I want us to see is that the One of the primary reasons for family is because in a family the next generation is developed with a specific kind of values. That's what godly offspring is. It is children who grow up to be adults and have a fixed set of values by which they can navigate their own lives and by which, and this is huge for what we're going to talk about next, by which their performance And the underlying purposes for their their performance at work, in their volunteer organizations, perhaps in, in the public square if they're involved in government, all of those things, their values inform their behaviors. And so when the family breaks down, what God is saying is not only are the husband and wife doing harm to each other, but in a limited sense... They're altering the understandings of the next generation about what family really is, what it stands for, and why it matters so much. Now, we talk a lot in this society about how one thing or another doesn't seem to have any evidence or give any evidence that it seems to be harmful. There's been a lot of discussion about things that are or not harmful in terms of social structure over the last 20 years. Here's what I want all of us to be aware of. It can take two to three generations to see whether something was a good behavior or a bad behavior. In other words, as divorce rises and more children are being raised in homes where the, the biological mother and father are not the mother and father in the home, in those types of homes, we would have to wait two to three generations to see if that kind of living actually matters. So when I look at a child in the moment, two years after the couple is divorced, and the child seems to be well-adjusted and happy, we might draw the conclusion, oh, well, it hasn't really made any difference. Well, we honestly don't know that until that child reaches adulthood and starts to live out his own life and be responsible for his own life, and until he actually gets into influential positions where he has to decide for himself what's right and wrong about the way he treats other people. Look, two to Okay, sorry about that. We had a little battery issue there, so I'm back again. And as I was saying, look two to three generations out to see what the long-term consequences of something are. Okay, so we said the first the first institution is the family. Now, the family is more than just the developer of the next generation of humans. In other words, the family doesn't just perpetuate its own cycle that one generation makes the next generation makes the next generation and therefore perpetuates the values of family. What family does is create the adults who will feed all of the work world, all of civil society, and also this next category or this next institution of God, which is government. Well, as long as there's only a handful of people that populate the earth, not much government is needed. You can go your way, I can go mine. You can take your family your way, and I can go mine. As, as the world becomes more populous... Government is essential. And wherever people choose to live together, more than two or three, wherever people choose to live together for financial advantage, for protection and security, because they believe that the combined work and specialized gifts and talents of of a group of people can do better than individuals going off by themselves, wherever that's true, some sort of government is necessary. Government has a few functions provides protection from outside forces that would choose to do harm. In other words, the government of the people seeks to protect the people that it governs. The government of the people also tries to create some unity. The government of the people attempts to provide big overarching goals that all of the people can unite behind and move toward and live toward, goals that are good for all of the people that are being governed. So government protects, government secures, Government nurtures opportunity for those that are governed. But I think you'll see that there's a problem. To the degree that people populate government, in other words, leaders are people, to that degree, which is always the case, it matters how people were raised and what their values were. Well, where do people get their values? Yeah, most of the value, foundational values that you and I have were begun, were set in place, were, were sort of formed almost like wet concrete and it's starting to set in the family. And so when there is a fracture or a breakdown in the family, to come back to the words from Malachi, when godly offspring are not the result of a man and a woman committed to each other and committed to raising godly children, when godly offspring are not the product of that union, then Government is populated by people who did not have the blessing of being brought up as godly kids. Now, what happens then? Government is the thing that protects the family. So, if the institution that protects the family is populated by people who had a bad family experience, then those who populate government, in other words, those who lead government, may not be as favorably disposed toward or see the value in protecting family. Now, just let that settle in. Do your own assessment of what you see out there in society today. I'm not going to speak into that. I'll let you make that choice. So, listen to some words. These from the Apostle Paul, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which is from God. Now, that means that God establishes the need for authority. I personally do not believe that that means that a bad leader is a gift from God. Not not that at all. But I do believe that it is God's ideal that there be authorities in place that help to establish order, uh, turn chaos into order, and order into the opportunity for human thriving. And all of that happens best when those governing have solid Values. Now, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, you might say, well, those values could come from somewhere else. I'm not here to argue for or against that right now. Again, that's a subject for another conversation. All we know is that families that stay together and help to mold their children through the age where they're able and responsible to be on their own set the next generation up for the best success. And all of society pays the price when that doesn't happen. All of society is blessed when it does. Here's the way that an older text from Proverbs says it. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked hold authority or rule, the people mourn. So then what would be the logical conclusion? If we want the next generation of humans to rejoice and thrive then what we want to do is have governments that are populated by people who have good values and want those people to thrive. Okay, let's return to that verse in Proverbs. When the righteous are in authority, when they increase, when they thrive, when righteous people thrive, remember righteous people are those that come out of godly families, then the people rejoice. Who are the people? The ones being led. But when the wicked hold authority or hold rule, the people mourn. So one generation's product, which is the children, which become adults in the next generation, one generation's children will bless or curse the next generation. Now here's the interesting thing. The couple that separates casually carelessly, because of personal desires, more so than because of what's right for society. And look at the way God says it. God says one of the consequences of not being committed to marriage is not just that you and your spouse struggle, it's that your kids will struggle. And and everyone who your kids come in contact with later on in life will struggle. That turns this impetus for staying married and fighting for your marriage. And there you see that terminology. What's a champion? Someone who fights for something worthy or noble. What? Who is a champion? Someone who steps into a gap and advocates for. Perhaps you and your wife right now are struggling. Perhaps you and family members are struggling. Perhaps you need to be the person who steps into that gap and advocates for. For staying together and fighting through this thing and I don't mean fighting as in a violent fighting but I mean fighting by, by doing the difficult work the determined and difficult work of getting to a better place alright well that's not the end of it so family's purpose one of them is to raise up godly offspring that populates the next generation the third institution though is the church now who populates the church that's an interesting question Because the church is at times populated by those who themselves were raised in the church, grow up, and they become adults, and they, they commit to remaining in church. Incidentally, who is the church? The church is people who have simply made a commitment to follow after Jesus. They've said, I do, to a relationship with God through Jesus, but they've said something more. And this is the powerful part. They've said, I intend to orient my life around following Jesus. If I have to choose between doing it my way and doing it God's way and there's a difference, my commitment to Jesus compels me to do it God's way. Sometimes the two are going to be perfectly aligned. Sometimes there's it's not really going to matter. For instance, God doesn't care if you buy a purple car or a pink car. God doesn't care if you buy a Ford or a Chevy, I don't think. I, I personally don't believe God cares if you live in this neighborhood or that There's probably ministry opportunities, prosperity opportunities in both communities. That's not what I'm saying. But there are times when you know for a fact Jesus would ask you to do things one way. Make peace with a family member perhaps. Not go to war over something. Offer forgiveness when it was necessary. Even if you didn't think you should have to be the one to go first. These are the kinds of things that Christ followers do. And Christ followers are the ones who populate the church. Well, when people who grow up in out of broken homes where there wasn't a serious commitment to follow God's commands in one generation, remember marriage, family, that's God's idea. Staying married for life, that's God's idea. So the church should be populated with people who have made a commitment to follow Jesus. That's what we've already said following Jesus when it comes to marriage says choose your mate carefully marry for life now when the church is populated from by people who start to break God's covenant requests if you will well then the world around watches and the world says maybe this church thing doesn't work and what I want us to do now very quickly is is look at why each of these institutions, family, government, church, depends on and needs the others and why when there is dysfunction in anyone, the other two are hurt. When there's dysfunction in government, families are injured. Too high a price is placed on or too high a burden is placed on families sometimes. When government is dysfunctional, the church is not afforded the correct freedom to do what it needs to do. Or the church The church sometimes, when it is dysfunctional, imposes ridiculous rules or regulations or is highly judgmental of people in government or families that don't fit with a certain mold that they have. In other words, each one of these three institutions can do good and blessing or do harm and cursing to the other two institutions. But here's what I want you to see. It all starts in the home. Everything starts with individual human beings. Everything starts with godly people and grows out from there throughout generations. All right, two more things that I want to call our attention to which have complicated things in the last couple hundred years. The first is the rise of the what we'll call the publicly held corporation. For most of human history, the means of production, that is wealth, fields, factories, boats... Anything that had to do with exploring new regions or battling new regions, acquiring new regions, all that was held by what we'll call the state. In other words, it was held by government. We see vestiges of that left today. That was the case for most of human history. There were small family farms. There were small family enterprises where the business was the family and the family was the business and therefore the business's values were the family's values and vice versa. And then there was the state, and the state is government. So where do government's values come from? Well, we've already talked about that. Government's values should come from those of the human beings that populate government, which means, hopefully, in God's design, godly people will populate government positions. Government positions will be held by godly people who will govern in a righteous way. Well, the rise of the modern publicly held corporation puts the ownership of commerce in, indivi- in individual hands, but public hands. It's almost as if, if you will, there is not one direct sole point in a publicly held corporation. Now, I'm not here to be for or against public corporations. But again, the same as is with true with government being populated either by godly or ungodly people, by the righteous or the wicked, modern corporations can be populated by one of two things. There's a rise of another institution that is has always been present, but is more exaggerated in its presence and its reach today than ever before, and that's just basic societal culture. Here's the way we'll look at it. The entertainment industry. We call it an industry. It, it is actually a business. A lot of it is actually publicly traded entities that hold these entertainment divisions, we'll say. But it's also individuals within the entertainment industry. It's not just that. It's the rise of a 24-hour news media. It, It is social media. It is all of the things that go into forming in the minds of people an impression about what a person should look like, talk like, dress like, act like, what they should drive, what they should drink, what they should wear, And I could go on and on. Now, here's what happens. The modern publicly held corporation and modern societal culture feed each other. They support each other. Businesses make money based on social trends. Social trends are formed by business leaders. The two work together. Now, if you want to know what we, who follow after Jesus, can engage in, The things that I have just described should open your eyes to the practical nature of being champions, of being warriors for a good cause, of standing up first for our families. Secondly, understanding that our reach into government in the next generation is determined very often by what we do at home. Understanding that our ability to be the church not just to go to church, but to be the church, the people who follow Jesus and follow Jesus in all areas of life is going to cause us to step into certain situations in the workplace, in society, in all of our volunteer organizations, and it's going to cause us to offer better, higher, more righteous, more just, more more oriented toward human thriving for all solutions. All right, I want you to think about that seriously and how that will impact the way you live your life as a champion from this moment on. We'll come back and wrap up with a few thoughts. Okay, and we're back, and the next thing that I would like us to consider is to pick up where we left off when it comes to the price paid to gain something, the price paid to keep something, And the radical and then the incremental change that are necessary in order to move from, as we described it, bottom left to top right, from where we are relative to our deeply held desire to where we want to be relative to that. Well, here's what we know, that when you and I perform at peak levels, when we take and shoulder the responsibilities of attempting to make forward progress day in and day out, two things happen. Or two things are present. The first is this. Everything in life is the way it is for a reason. Whenever you seek to displace anything that is, you are asking for a fight. You are by virtue of the fact that you say, I want to be where I am not. I want to make something that is not. I want to change something that is. Whenever you step into that, understand this. You are battling all of the forces that have conspired to keep something the way it is. Whether you're battling in culture, whether you're battling in family, whether you're battling in, in, in the workplace, there are reasons why everything is the way it is. And it will create take at times great levels, great levels of determination sustained over a long period of time to affect the change and reach the desired outcome that you have. Now, at a personal human level, the result of that commitment to ongoing change, the commitment to every day, get up, give your all to something, is this. We accumulate stress. See, you thought I might be saying something overly spiritual. I'm not. I want to make this as practical as can be. You and I accumulate stress, and what we know what science tells us is that human beings do not live well with increased levels of success. It literally impacts our health. It can impact our decision making. It actually impacts our creativity. It diminishes our performance when we need to perform at peak capacity. Stress is actually bad for us and yet stress is the inevitable consequence that comes from performing at high levels. Come back to the quote that I read to you earlier, pressure is a privilege that comes only when performing at the highest levels. The man who offered that piece of insight was talking about performing on the athletic field. And what we know about performing on the athletic field is this, you'll train all week at a relatively high level, there will be a rest day, usually right the day before the game, You go out and you play your game and you have to give your all, but you don't have to give your all forever. You only have to give your all for several hours and then you can relax. Stress, on the other hand, is the accumulation of giving your best without ever being able to let your best down. never Never allowing yourself to be able to drop that load, to drop that weight, to set it down and breathe. Now, as as we look through the scriptures, and we want to come back and make make this in, incredibly practical, God actually understands this. He understands this and makes an accommodation for us, and the accommodation he makes for us is contained right in the Basic Ten Commandments, and it's called the Sabbath. Now, don't, don't turn off on me, don't shut down before you hear me out on this. I know when some of you hear the Sabbath, if you grew up in church, you already probably have a negative association with it. Uh, If you grew up in my generation, you probably, you can remember times when you were young, when maybe you, you weren't allowed to do things on Sundays, or there were all these weird observances. I'm not talking about that kind of Sabbath. What I'm talking about is a Sabbath that is a, what we'll call, new covenant. Jesus as Lord Sabbath. That kind of a Sabbath. Remember, Jesus said that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He actually said that one day when he was being questioned about something. He said, I am actually Lord of the Sabbath. And what that means is that following Jesus puts us in alignment with following the Sabbath. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Jesus did good things on the Sabbath. So we can't say definitively that no one should ever work on the Sabbath. So what is Sabbath? Let's read together, or I'm going to read and you'll listen, this text from Exodus. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day, that is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall do no work, neither you, nor your sons or your daughters, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In other words, the entire town shut down for the Sabbath. The convenience store wasn't open. The Walmart wasn't open. I know they didn't have a Walmart, but any of the any of the means of commerce, they just weren't open. People went home. They stayed home. Uh, one of the created or concocted rules that came about later on, one of the 600 plus additional rules that that legalistic people added to the old covenant rules was that on a Sabbath, there was something referred to as a Sabbath day's journey. In other words, that was the distance that you were actually allowed to walk on a Sabbath. See, that's legalistic Sabbath keeping. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is giving yourself permission to set your load down, to set your burden down, to detoxify from the build-up stress of the week. And it's essential. Now Everybody's going to have a different collection of sabbath practices depending on what they do and i don't have time to to spend right now talking about the the various sabbath practices that you and i can have understand this you and i as high performers need a place and a time that we are committed to setting our burden down and here's the final thing i'll say on that don't leave it to chance make a firm commitment to yourself that there is a certain time every week perhaps even a certain collection of practices that you do every week that help you to refresh, to reconnect with God, because that was part of the intent of Sabbath, to refresh, to reconnect with God, to reconnect with each other. Remember, no one in the town was working. When you and I are working, we can become pretty tunnel vision. We lose sight of God. We lose sight of each other. We sometimes even forget the reasons why we're working when we're pouring ourselves into the work. Don't we do that as men? You might even lose sight of why it is that you claim to be working so hard at the time when you're working so hard. The Sabbath is a time for rest, reflection, restoration, renewal of a relationship, and all that together is great as an antidote to stress. Think about that for a moment. We'll be right back with a couple of final thoughts. Okay, we're back and this is a good time for me to remind you that detailed notes on this week's material are available. If you don't receive that in an email from us every week, you can reach out to us. Email us at men at mstarqtown.org. That's men at mstarqtown.org. Reach out to us and we'll make sure we get you some more detailed notes. What we do here is a really basic review. There's a lot more material that's offered in each week's study notes. Okay, I want to talk about two final things. The first is this, that your commitment to some large, firmly fixed desire is probably going to be costly to you. Let me read some some things directly from the notes. Commitment to the battle can be costly. You will earn embarrassment for your failed attempts. Now, just pause there for a minute and think about that. See, it's one thing to work hard and succeed. It's another thing to work hard and fail. But what you and I know to be true, either from personal experience or from personal observation, is that sometimes you will fail. And not only do you lose all the labor, all the money, all the sweat that was involved in that, not only that, but you end up being embarrassed, being shamed, being sometimes even ridiculed for your failure. Your commitment to try something, perhaps it's never been done before, certainly never been done before by you, opens you up to embarrassment. You should expect that. Just own the fact that this is part of the price that you will have to pay for greatness and, and then understand how to process all of that those feelings. Okay, so you will earn embarrassment for your failed attempts, loss of valued resources, some of which may not be replaceable. You may never have the same resources again to work with as you did this time. It will cost you positional and reputational capital. In other words, people may not trust you the same as they used to. People that financed you in the past may never finance you again. People that trusted you as a leader in something may not for a while trust you with something again. There may be actual risk to your physical health. And as if all that were not, were not enough there's no guarantee of success. You may lose it to fight and may not even survive it. There's a phrase that was popular for quite a while. I believe it was originally attributed to Robert Shuler, although there's a number of other attributable sources potentially. But it it goes something like this. It asks a question. It says, what great thing would you try if you knew you couldn't fail? And some people then in Christian In Christian circles, have taken that and adapted it and said, What great thing for God would you attempt if you knew that God would bless it and you wouldn't fail? Well, I want to ask the question in a different way. And the way I want to ask it is more accurately reflective of real life. What great thing would you attempt because of its value, even if you might fail? Because you see, none of us is guaranteed a window into the future. That assures us that the thing that we start is going to succeed. It may fall flat, it may never recover from a failure, it may nosedive and tank and be done. Was it worth the loss? The loss as that we just described: personal embarrassment, lost resources, loss of reputation or positional capital, actually, sometimes loss of health, loss of sometimes relationships. Will that loss have been worth it? Is the thing that you're striving for so important that you can even stomach the reality that some of those things may be lost to you and you might not succeed, but the thing that you're fighting for was so important that you just couldn't say no to the battle? All right, one final pause, and we're back with the last thoughts. Okay, and we're back. There's... there's A final thought that I want to leave us with, and it it comes in a multi-part, complex process, here's the way I want to introduce it. There is admirable determination, and then there's just plain stupid stubbornness. And as one of the fellows on Saturday morning said, and that's a really fine line, and it's hard to tell when you're on one side of it versus the other side of it. Uh, There's an old joke that goes something like that, that the difference between determination and stubbornness is whether you're successful in the end. People that aren't successful are accused of being stubborn. People that make it to the finish line and they are successful are credited with being determined. But yet, in the day-to-day of it, it's really hard to tell the difference sometimes. Well, what I'd like us to do is be able to put more of a space between intelligently determined and stupidly stubborn. I'd like there to be sort of a demilitarized zone in the middle, if you will, And for that, we have to be able to ask ourselves a few questions. As you approach the next difficulty that is going to require your determination, or as you are walking through this season of determination against seemingly insurmountable odds, here's the question I want you to ask. Is the greatest struggle that I am facing an external battle or an internal one? Is it a battle inside my own mind? Am I not taking the steps that I know I should take because I'm scared, because I'm emotionally drained, because my stress levels are too high, because because I'm just discouraged and I just don't seem to be able to get beyond it, perhaps because I don't want to be inconvenienced in this way. I can stomach certain kinds of inconveniences, but I can't stomach physical pain. I can stomach certain kinds of inconveniences, but I can't stomach attacks on my reputation or my respectability. I can stomach one thing, but I can't stomach loss of sleep or, or poor eating until I get through something, whatever it is. Is this an external battle that needs to be fought that requires specific skills or resources Or is this an internal battle of the mind that it's holding you back? And the only thing really holding you back is the difference between your emotional state now versus the emotional state that you could have. The way I liken it is, is to look at it is this. Suppose you've committed to run a marathon and you begin your training in the late summer and your first runs are done early in the morning because that's the only time you have, but it's early in the morning on August and September days. And apart from those few days when it might rain, the running will be pretty pleasant in August and September at 5 o'clock in the morning. But now as your training progresses, you're going to be running longer, longer, and you're going to be running harder or perhaps faster. But there's something else going to happen. You're going to be running in the cold now because August and September are going to give way to October and then to November and perhaps to December. There's a difference between waking up at five o'clock in the morning and going out for a run on a pleasant August morning as the sun is just rising versus waking up on an extremely cold December day and convincing yourself to get out there and run in that temperature. But now ask yourself, is it the external obstacle? Well, it's probably not. The road is the same. The bed that you woke up from is the same. All of those external factors are basically the same except for the cold. The real differentiator here is your comfort. In August, it's pretty comfortable to go out there. In December, there's a lot of factors that sort of demoralize you and make you have to be mentally tough in order to step into the battle. So that's an example of what it means to be mentally tough. But now we'll take a different example Suppose that you're, as part of a long-distance hike, it requires you to cross a deep, rapidly moving, extremely cold body of water. We'll say a a pretty good-sized river. Suppose that's part of what you have to do. Or maybe you've watched one of these adventure shows and you've watched people do that. Well, now we're talking about some internal mental struggle. Am I fearful? Do I think I can do it? Do I know the uncertainties? But there are also some very real external struggles too. If it takes me too long, am I going to start to suffer hypothermia? If the current's moving too fast and i lose my footing, could I be swept downstream? Could I actually drown at this process? See, there is an internal battle that needs to be fought, but there is also then an external battle that requires discernment and skill and technique. Which most stands in your way right now and is getting in the way of your moving to the next step? Is it an internal battle of the mind? Is it an external battle of circumstances? Or is it like the stream crossing, some combination of each? And that's the final thing I'm going to leave you with this week. Like I said, there's many more ideas that are contained in the notes. I'd encourage you to get them and read them, perhaps even listen to this a few times. If you'd like, share it with somebody whom you think can be helped by it. And we're going to do this again next week, looking at another one of the qualities of championship performance.